Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and this is On Becoming. I'm hoping that you're enjoying listening to the podcast. I'm certainly enjoying making it. If you're finding the podcast helpful to your own journey of becoming, please consider following or subscribing to the podcast. If you'd like to support us, please do so at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or paypal at onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. As always, I invite you to get in touch about the podcast if you have questions or comments or suggestions. And don't forget that you can hear the audio version of this podcast wherever you get your audio podcast and the video version on YouTube. We've been talking about the various ways in which God dies, as well as the various reactions Nietzsche seems to have in face of the news. If you haven't listened to the first episode of this two-part series, I encourage you to do so before listening to this episode. As we've seen, the reason for the death of God in the gay science seems relatively straightforward. Belief in God is no longer possible due to such 19th century factors as the dominance of the historical critical method of reading scripture, the rise of modern science and thus the rise of incredulity toward anything miraculous, the growing sense that scripture is merely a human product, and the idea that God is the creation of wish projection. Yet given that the madman says, we have killed him, there is clearly a conspiracy. We have mentioned the developments found in Kant, Strauss, and Feuerbach as elements of this conspiracy, but there's a whole host of German philosophers, theologians, and biblical exegetes who are putting both Christian theology and the biblical writings under gross and critical scrutiny. Moreover, Nietzsche was not the first to announce the death of God. That distinction probably goes to Max Stirner, the pen name of Johann Caspar Schmidt, who published The Ego and His Own in 1844. Even though there is no solid evidence to demonstrate that Nietzsche read Stirner, or even was significantly influenced by him, there are some interesting parallels between Stirner's thought and that of Nietzsche. Of course, there are a few tantalizing bits of evidence that Nietzsche did know about Stirner. One of Nietzsche's friends checked Stirner's works out of the Basel University Library in 1874. It's often been speculated that he did so at Nietzsche's request. It does seem that Nietzsche was at least familiar with Stirner. One scholar relates Nietzsche's conversation with Ida Overbeck, Franz Overbeck's wife, in which Nietzsche mentions his interest in Stirner and then adds, Forget it. People will speak of plagiarism, but you will not do that. I know it. It's also remarkable that Stirner's motto is, Realize yourself, and Nietzsche's is, Become who you are. Those sound pretty similar, though of course that could simply be a coincidence. More than that, Stirner anticipates Nietzsche's rejection of metaphysics, his criticism of Christianity's denunciation and suppression of human instincts, the call for strong individuals, the freedom to decide one's own moral values, and the critique of the ascetic priest, which Stirner terms the cleric. Most importantly, it was Stirner who writes, Man has killed God in order to become now... Sole, God on high. Thus there is a precedent for the madman's pronouncement. And let me add here that this is how most thinking works. We might think that we've come up with something totally new and then discover either one that someone else has already said it or two that one is really just extending the thoughts of previous thinkers to arrive at what seems like a new conclusion that in retrospect can be seen as a kind of logical development of previous thought. Indeed, many of the madman's hearers are not at all surprised by the news. They respond with laughter. Has he been lost, they ask? 
Did he lose his way like a child? While some of those in the crowd might well have read Stirner, most likely they were people who attended church and made pretensions to belief, all while believing in something like Strauss's new faith. After all, attending church was a social behavior still expected of any respectable person in 19th century Germany. But consider the difference between the madman and his hearers, as described by Nietzsche. Unlike his hearers, the madman is considerably perturbed by this dramatic event. How can we console ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? The holiest and the mightiest thing the world has ever possessed has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood from us? With what water could we clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what holy games will we have to invent for ourselves? Is the magnitude of this deed not too great for us? Do we have to become gods merely to appear worthy of it? There was never a greater deed. And whoever is born after us will, on account of this deed, belong to a higher history than all history up till now. That Nietzsche thinks something remarkable, even unprecedented, has taken place is clear. It is important to note that section 343 of the Gay Science, in which Nietzsche speaks of God's death with cheerfulness, is part of Book 5, which Nietzsche added to the Gay Science five years after initial publication of the first four books. In marked contrast, in the famous section 125, there is no cheerfulness at all, only a sense of weight, a guilty feeling of having done something unclean, and a deep sorrow. Is it the madman who sings Requiem Aeternum Deo, or is it Nietzsche? Is this Nietzsche speaking from deep in his heart about the gravity of what he, not to mention others, has done? It seems hard to read this passage without catching a sense of sadness and more than a whiff of regret. But does this passage indicate that Nietzsche has moved through the stages of grief and arrived at cheerfulness? Or is this an attempt by Nietzsche to convince himself? It's hard to know which is the case. Further, speaking this way could be read as part of Nietzsche's strategy for reshaping himself and reconfiguring his piety. To interpret the death of God in a cheerful way is to put Nietzsche's celebrated ability to switch perspectives to work. Oddly enough, Nietzsche contends that the death of God is actually the result of the belief in God taken to its logical conclusion. He says, One can see what it was that actually triumphed over the Christian God. Christian morality itself, the concept of truthfulness that was taken ever more rigorously, the Father Confessor's refinement of the Christian conscience translated and sublimated into a scientific conscience, into intellectual cleanness at any price. So Christianity's drive towards truth, its unrelenting honesty, proves its undoing. The price of belief in God is that belief in God can no longer be accepted. Nietzsche interprets the drive toward historical critical readings of scriptural texts as motivated by a love of truth and even a sense of moral responsibility. It is the sheer rigor of Christian values that undermine both God and even themselves. To be totally committed to truth is to be truthful enough to be able to admit that there is no truth, at least in the platonic sense of the term, and that there is no morality. That's morality with a capital M. Whereas Nietzsche suggests that Plato had originally lied in constructing the forms, Christianity ultimately destroys itself because of its very logic. But in so doing, it stays true to itself. Let's turn to 
murder by jealousy, and death by pity. Having considered the account of the death of God in the gay science, it's highly illuminating to juxtapose that account with what we find in Thus Spoke Zarathustra. There we find a couple of curious but important variations. For one, we get a motivation for God's death that is strangely lacking in the gay science. For another, we get a different account of the death of God, one that at least seems strangely at odds with the account that we've considered so far. While Zarathustra is speaking to his disciples, friends, to use his term, and he freely admits that God is a conjecture. He then goes on to speak very frankly. But let me reveal my heart to you entirely, my friends. If there were gods, how could I endure not to be a god? Hence, there are no gods. Though I drew this conclusion, now it draws me. This is a strikingly different reason for rejecting God, and one that seems hardly intellectually defensible. In fact, its logic appears to be childish in the worst possible way. I don't get to be God, so no one gets to be God. No wonder that Zarathustra realizes that he's revealing something from deep in his heart. And yet one cannot help but wonder if some people actually do reject the notion of God, simply because they cannot bear the thought that someone else might be above one. I have to say that personally I simply don't resonate with such thinking. I'm more than happy to say that I'm not God or to admit that there is something higher and more powerful than me. Yet it's not hard to see that the Enlightenment faith in humanity might make one reluctant to admit that, yes, there may be something above us. In any case, the psychological account for the death of God is further strengthened by what the ugliest man says. Zarathustra encounters the ugliest man and recognizes him as the murderer of God. He accuses him of having taken revenge upon God, and the ugliest man admits that this is exactly what he's done. Speaking of God, the ugliest man says, he had to die. He saw with eyes that saw everything. He saw man's depths and ultimate grounds, all his concealed disgrace and ugliness. His pity knew no shame. He crawled into my dirtiest nooks. This most curious, over-obtrusive, over-pitying one had to die. He always saw me. On such a witness, I wanted to have revenge or not live myself. The God who saw everything, even man, this God had to die. Man cannot bear it that such a witness should live. Because of what Nietzsche elsewhere says about Socrates being ugly, some commentators identify Socrates with the ugliest man. As far as I can see, this is merely speculation. But it is rather interesting that it's the ugliest man who thinks God has to die. Is this because the ugliest man is ugly inside? Given that the problem is that God can see all his concealed disgrace and ugliness, such an interpretation certainly is possible. If such an account is correct, then the problem is that God has access to all that the ugliest man wants to hide. Of course, the God that has to die here sounds very much like the pietistic god of Christianity, both in the sense of knowing all and being so pitying in nature. So Socrates seems an inappropriate assassin. The logic here is essentially the same as the previous reason given by Zarathustra. It's the logic of raisonnement, a resentful, vengeful logic. Perhaps the only difference between Zarathustra's version and that of the ugliest man is that the latter is so obsessed and angry it is largely that obsession that makes the ugliest man so truly ugly. 
He has become racked with revenge and it has taken a physical toll upon his physical features or his insides or both. Yet there's another reason for this ugliness. As Zarathustra leaves the ugliest man, he remarks, none have I found yet who despised himself more deeply. On the other hand, Zarathustra goes on to say, I love the great despisers, and even asks, was he perhaps the higher man whose cry I heard? To despise oneself is part of the overcoming that Zarathustra seeks. On the other hand, the reason why this man is so ugly may be that he is riddled with shame. He has so internalized the morality of God, who is now dead, that he still feels the burden of that shame and so despises himself. But another way, perhaps the problem is that the ugliness has been created by the comparison to perfection that cannot be achieved. As you can see, there are multiple ways of reading this passage, and it is probably most helpful to consider as many interpretations as possible. So far, we've only examined deaths by murder. The first is a murder by way of the truth. The second is a murder by way of revenge. Yet Nietzsche also speaks of death by way of pity. By the way, I'm not the only Nietzsche scholar who thinks that there are multiple accounts of God's death, but there aren't many others. Gilles Deleuze is one of the few who note that Nietzsche presents us with different versions of the death of God. As he puts it, this death is, and I'm quoting, sometimes presented as accidental and sometimes the effect of a criminal act. However, I don't know anyone else who has laid out these deaths in detail. Anyway, in the section just preceding the ugliest man, Zarathustra encounters a retired pope. Zarathustra asks him, You know how he died? Is it true what they say, that pity strangled him, that he saw how man hung on the cross, and that he could not bear it, that the love of man became his hell, and in the end, his death? The old pope doesn't answer, but his lack of an answer seems to be an affirmation of Zarathustra's supposition. The reason why pity would cause one to die is that mitleiden is simply the compounding of suffering. And now, quoting from Nietzsche, pity, mitleiden, insofar as it really causes suffering, leiden, and this is here our only point of view, is a weakness, like every losing of oneself through a harmful effect. It increases the amount of suffering in the world. I should point out that this is just one of the things that Nietzsche says about pity. He also believes that pity places the person doing the pitying above the person who's being pitied, but that's a point for another episode. In any case, God dies from taking all of the suffering of the world. It becomes simply overwhelming. But of course, God could have chosen not to do so. In that respect, one could interpret this death by pity as a suicide which is a remarkably interesting way of thinking about the death of God and probably bears further reflection. Thus, Nietzsche's genealogy of the deaths of God turned out to be rather complicated. God dies in more than one way and for more than one reason. Moreover, Nietzsche leaves us with these various perspectives, not choosing any one over the others. Such is a quintessentially Nietzschean thing to do. Yet it leaves the reader with a question. Are these accounts all equally plausible, or is one more plausible than the others? In other words, while Nietzsche's loss of faith seems to have been due to a sense of Christianity's implausibility, does the psychological account have anything to do with him personally? 
The question is at bottom whether Nietzsche's own reasons for rejecting the metaphysics of Christianity are simply intellectual, or whether the psychological account plays a role too. While such a question is ultimately impossible to answer, the psychological account certainly fits in with the kind of individualism to which Nietzsche aspires. Consider what Nietzsche writes in the section Excelsior, literally higher. Uh, this is in the Gay Science. You will never pray again, never adore again, never again rest in endless trust. You refuse to let yourself stop to unharness your thoughts before any ultimate wisdom, goodness, or power. What would make it easier to refuse to pray or adore or trust than to remove anything or anyone to whom one might pray or show adoration or trust? Of course, Nietzsche realized just how overwhelming such a task is for humankind. For he goes on to say, man of renunciation, all of this you wish to renounce? Who will give you the strength to do so? No one yet has had the strength. Whether Nietzsche has the strength to do so was one of the themes we've already considered. As I've argued, Nietzsche does not have the power to renounce all adoration and truth, for he ends up transferring that adoration and trust from God to life. And this raises a very basic question. Are human beings such that they cannot help but look to something transcendent in order to find meaning? And if that's the case, what would the transcendent be? One of the difficulties in theology and philosophy is defining even what the word transcendent means. The obvious meaning would be something like God, or another world that transcends this one. That's the route of both Platonism and Christianity. Yet we can talk about transcendence within immanence, in which the transcendent isn't quite so transcendent. If you're wondering what that might mean, consider that one can transcend oneself by having children, or writing a book, or various other ways in which one lives on after death. Life after death obviously can be another form of transcendence, since one transcends this life by going on to another. But now we come to the question of who dies? On my reading, there are three deaths for Nietzsche. The first is what Pascal had called the God of the Philosophers. Nietzsche terms this the last, thinnest, emptiest being, the ens realissimum. Why is such a concept described as thinnest and emptiest? Because the concept of such a God is only drawn in terms of omnipotence and omniscience, concepts that are extremely vague. Perhaps the idea of omnipotence makes sense to you, but I really can't wrap my hand around the idea that there could be a being who could simply do anything. There are defenders of such a view, like the Russian philosopher Lev Shestov, who claims that God is so powerful that he could make 2 plus 2 equal 5, and he can turn someone back into a virgin. But conceptions of God that go in this direction are problematic, in that if God can do anything, then he could promise salvation or eternal life, and then go back on that promise. At this point, those who believe that such things would be possible would say that God wouldn't do that. But of course, if God can do anything, what exactly would stop him? In case you're wondering what the answer to that question is, consider that many theologians in the Christian tradition have decided that God simply couldn't do anything. For instance, God is incapable of sinning and God is bound by his own eternal law. In the end, Nietzsche, of course, doesn't really argue against this concept in the same way that he never really argues against Plato's forms. 
On Nietzsche's view, this concept of God has been spun out of thin air by what Nietzsche calls sickly web spinners. Nietzsche is certainly right on that score. As Jean-Luc Marion points out, that which dies does not have any right to claim, even when it is alive, to be God. On this point, Marion and Nietzsche are agreed. What dies is no less than an idol. One can be grateful to Nietzsche for using his subtle hammer to detect such an idol. Yet the death that the Ans Realissimum turns out to be effectively the death of metaphysics and the end of the true world. No one has described this death more effectively than Martin Heidegger. He says, The pronouncement God is dead means the supersensory world is without effective power. It bestows no life. Metaphysics, that is, for Nietzsche, Western philosophy understood as Platonism, is at an end. Nietzsche understands his own philosophy as the counter-movement to metaphysics, and that means for him a movement in opposition to Platonism. The counter-movement that Nietzsche describes is simply the shifting of gravity from platonic otherworldliness to thisworldliness. In other words, Nietzsche thinks he is simply undoing Platonism, for Platonism effectively places life's center of gravity not in life, but in the beyond, in nothingness. One deprives life of its center of gravity altogether. That, by the way, is a quote from Nietzsche. Once Nietzsche's shift back is complete, now becomes the sense of life, rather than some other time or place. Put otherwise, the meaning of life is to be found in life itself, not in some other thing. There are two significant caveats that we have to add to this account of the death of God as the death of metaphysics, however. The first is that Heidegger thinks that Nietzsche has not quite left metaphysics behind. As he puts it, Nietzsche holds this overturning of metaphysics to be the overcoming of metaphysics. But every overturning of this kind remains only a self-deluding entanglement in the same that has become unknowable. To be sure, Nietzsche no longer wishes to ascribe power to the supersensory world. Yet Heidegger argues that Nietzsche is still engaged in the metaphysical project for two reasons. First, the very logic of overcoming metaphysics leaves one entangled in a metaphysical web. For one cannot simply give up metaphysics by walking away from it. Instead, one in effect exchanges one metaphysical position for another. Heidegger claims that the same logic is to be found in irrationalism, because the parallel between overcoming metaphysics and rationalism is so striking, it's worth quoting Heidegger's comments in full. Irrationalism is a way out of rationalism that does not lead us out into the open, but only gets us stuck still farther in rationalism. Certainly, Heidegger thinks that this is what happens to Nietzsche. He tries to escape from metaphysics, but ends up being stuck within its grasp. Yet the worst part is that one thinks one has successfully escaped. Second, and illustrative of first, Heidegger's charge is that Nietzsche reduces everything to the will to power, since, to quote Heidegger, the pronouncement, God is dead, can be thought adequately only from out of the essence of the will to power. That is, God's death is the result of a human will to power. Since Heidegger reads the will to power as the overarching metaphysical principle in Nietzsche's thought, in which Nietzsche becomes a kind of monist, Nietzsche still remains entangled in the metaphysical project. But there are at least two problems with Heidegger's charges. On the one hand, various commentators have argued that Heidegger, being particularly influenced by the posthumously published vol volume The Will to Power, makes the will to power far too central to Nietzsche's thought or at least far more central than Nietzsche ever intended 
to whatever extent we can determine Nietzsche's intentions. On the other hand, there's an open question regarding the status of the willed power itself. As two noted Nietzsche scholars have said, even if there exists a doctrine, one that can be unpacked analytically as a psychological principle, is it to be grasped ontologically as discarded notes from the knock-loss, that is to say, his leftover stuff that he didn't publish, seem to suggest? As should be clear, these questions are intertwined. Their answers are likewise intertwined. But the issue here is not merely the status of the knock-loss, which is the stuff that Nietzsche chose not to publish, and there's quite a lot of that. The question of whether the will to power is meant as a metaphysical principle cannot be determined simply by whether one does or does not accept the knock loss as authoritative. For the knock loss in no way makes it clear that the will to power either is or is not a metaphysical principle. I, for one, am unable to find any passage in the knock loss that makes any such reading obvious. On the contrary, given everything that Nietzsche says, it would seem that the will to power is not a metaphysical, but what we might call a physical principle. To shift the center of gravity back to this world, and to make life central to this world, is to leave metaphysics behind, which means we're left with only the physical world. Despite all that, Heidegger's point is one that cannot simply be ignored, though it must be recast. For the problem is not really whether Nietzsche sees himself as overcoming metaphysics, which seems clear enough, but whether he can. That is, are there still vestiges of metaphysics in his thought? Or to put this question much more pointedly and broadly, can metaphysics ever be left behind, merely by claiming to overcome it? Here I have in mind the problem Kant raises in the first preface to the Critique of Pure Reason. While science can in no way adjudicate between competing metaphysical claims, one is still left with the fact that one cannot help but make such claims. As Kant puts it, the problem is that, and now I'm quoting from him, these so-called indifferentists, to the extent that they think anything at all, always unavoidably fall back into metaphysical assertions which they profess so much to despise. So the question then becomes, just what counts as a metaphysical assertion? The answer from a Kantian point of view would be any ultimate principle that cannot be given a scientific basis. Given that definition, then Nietzsche's will to power or various kinds of forces that are found throughout his writings must be metaphysical in nature. The only other possibility would just be to start talking differently. And that, as it turns out, is the strategy of Richard Rorty. And he thinks he's merely borrowing the strategy from Nietzsche. He writes, we simply refuse to talk in a certain way, the platonic way. The views we hope to persuade people to accept cannot be stated in platonic terminology. We've already seen that Nietzsche speaks of learning to think differently and ultimately to feel differently. Moreover, Nietzsche thinks that such notions as God can only be replaced by what he terms other metaphysical plausibilities, at bottom likewise untruths. <laughs> At this point, though, we must leave behind the realm of Nietzsche scholarship. That is, what did Nietzsche really mean? It's perfectly clear that Nietzsche wants to overcome metaphysics. What's less clear is whether Nietzsche or Rorty can do so simply by proclaiming to do so. And there's no way to adjudicate this dispute. One simply believes one way or the other. It's ultimately a matter of faith. On the one hand, even someone as postmodern as Derrida insists that it was a Greek who said, if one has to philosophize, one has to philosophize. If one does not have to philosophize, 
One still has to philosophize, to say it and think it. One always has to philosophize. All of that is to say that Derrida thinks we cannot escape from metaphysics. On the other hand, Emmanuel Levinas responds, not to philosophize would not be to philosophize still, nor succumb to opinions. But at best, it can only be Levinas the theologian who makes that claim, not Levinas the philosopher. One cannot escape philosophy and thereby metaphysics simply by making a philosophical argument against it. So it's perfectly appropriate that Nietzsche ultimately comes to call his own belief system a faith that is, and I'm quoting, the highest of all possible faiths, one that he baptizes with the name of Dionysus. Earlier I noted that there's a second caveat regarding the death of God. Assuming for the sake of argument that gods can die, and that one can truly escape from metaphysics, then where are we now? Unlike the more complicated 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous, Nietzsche presents us with a mere six-step program, which he titles How the True World Finally Became a Fiction. However, to get to the sixth step, there must be no more talk of either the true or the apparent world. Again, the comparison with Rorty is warranted, for Rorty wants to arrive at a place where we do not talk about relativism, since that talk supposes an oppositional term, say absolutism. Whatever one thinks about either Nietzsche's or Rorty's project, it is clear that we are not even close to being done away with the true world. It still functions in most philosophical discussions, even in ones such as Rorty's. Perhaps there may be time when God is dead and the true world has passed away, but we are far away from that at this point, which is to say that the Gottdämmerung continues to linger. Even though the death of God is for Nietzsche primarily metaphysical in nature, there are clearly two other deaths involved. There is the death of what we might term the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who self-identifies with the elusive formula, I am who I am, and also the Christ of faith. But we will turn to these deaths later when we consider Nietzsche's final position regarding Christianity. For now we can say that Nietzsche does not affirm the Christ of faith, but does affirm the historical figure of Jesus. Moreover, as we shall see, Nietzsche believes that the historical figure of Jesus has been severely manipulated into the Christ of faith. The primary person responsible for such an interpretation or manipulation is Paul, who, as Nietzsche points out, is not really concerned with the life of Jesus, but with his death. Nietzsche may be quite wrong about this, but his argument against Paul is one that cannot really be adjudicated. For one either accepts Paul's interpretation of Jesus, or one accepts Nietzsche's interpretation of Jesus. The point here is simply this. Neither Paul's interpretation nor Nietzsche's interpretation can be justified simply by looking at the facts. Both are looking at the same facts, and are coming up with markedly different interpretations of them. And choosing one over the other ends up being an article of faith. Yes, you've heard that correctly. To believe either is to believe something that cannot be justified by rational argument. And here we come to the end of this episode. I hope I've piqued your interest for what's to come. As always, if you're finding the podcast to be helpful in your own becoming, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash unbecomingpodcast or through paypal.com or the PayPal app. The username for both is our email address, onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. 
You can also just follow us or click subscribe. I'm Dr. Bruce Els Benson, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode.